Our sermon text this morning is the Old Testament reading from First Chronicles 9, and I'm going to read, reread a few of those verses. Beginning in verse 17. Now the gatekeepers were Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahaman and their relatives, Shalman the chief being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. And Shalom the son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah and his relatives of his father's house, the Korahites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, and their fathers had been set over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, that was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these were chosen to be gatekeepers of the thresholds, were 212. They were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in their office of trust. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you've gathered us together as your people, that you dwell among us and in us as your holy temple. We pray as we consider this portion of your word today that you would teach us what it means to guard your house, to be faithful gatekeepers. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. First Chronicles 9 begins with what seems like a conclusion to the first section of Chronicles. It begins with a reference to all Israel being enrolled by their genealogies. Behold, they are in the book of the kings of Israel. The chronicler has been listing the names of descendants of Abraham and particularly through Jacob. He's begun his genealogy with Adam and then focused down on Abraham's descendants. He's gone through virtually every tribe. He's gone through a genealogy of these tribes from the time of Jacob until the time of the exile, and in some cases even beyond the exile. He's taken the genealogy beyond the time when they were taken off into uh, Babylon. And now he comes down to this summary statement, all Israel was enrolled by their genealogies. It seems to be a conclusion to the genealogy. And that conclusion is not just a conclusion, but it seems to be something of a tragic conclusion because he goes on to mention not only is all Israel enrolled by their genealogies, but Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for her unfaithfulness. That's uh, The genealogy has brought us, brought us up to the time of the exile, and Israel, Judah, is no longer in the land. But of course, the genealogies are not over. There's another whole chapter of genealogies, and Chronicles is far from over. The genealogies take up the first nine chapters, but after that, it's uh, uh, the chronicler goes into the narrative that he's describing about the history of the kings. Like all endings in the Bible, this ending is not really a complete ending. It's an ending. It's the end of all Israel enrolled in their genealogies, but it's also a new beginning. And the reference to the exile in verse 1 suggests that the genealogy that continues in the list of names that continues in the rest of chapter 9 is a list in the genealogy of those who survived the exile and were returned and restored to the land after Babylonian exile. It looks like an ending for Judah, but Judah is not over. Even though she's lost her land, she has lost her temple, she has lost her king, still Judah's history is not finished. God's history is never finished with his people. No endings are final. 
God is the God of endings, but always of endings and new beginnings. And the chronicler indicates that to us by the way he opens up the continuation of the genealogy. He says, now the first who dwelt in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. And that word first is from the same root as the word for beginning, right at the beginning of the Bible. After this ending of exile, God pronounces in the beginning once again. And this genealogy ends, this list of Levites, priests, and temple servants ends with a reference to Sabbath in verse 32. Some of their brothers of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. He continues the history of Israel after the exile. He continues even the genealogy. Israel continues to be fruitful and multiply even though they are in Babylon and even beyond the return from Babylon. And he describes this in a chapter that begins with the word beginning and ends with the word Sabbath. Israel enjoys a new creation. The chronicler describes a new arrangement of creation by rewriting Genesis 1. He describes four categories of people in this first uh, first couple of verses. There are Israel, there's priests, there's Levites, and then there are temple servants. And as he unpacks that, there are seven different groups that he mentions. There are people from Manasseh and from Ephraim, from Judah and from Benjamin, and then there are Levites, priests, and gatekeepers. But surprisingly, perhaps, surprisingly for us, the bulk of this chapter is not taken up with the continuation of the tribe of Judah or the continuation of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's genealogy resumes at the end of the chapter. It's not even taken up with the genealogy of the priests coming from Aaron. The bulk of this chapter is concerned with the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers seem to be the most important part of the community that comes back from exile and is restored to the land. That is somewhat surprising to us. We don't think of gatekeepers as essential components of Israel. There's very little about gatekeepers when Israel first comes out of Egypt and goes into uh, the wilderness and eventually into the land. We know they have gatekeepers, but there's not a whole lot about them. But now that they come out of Babylon and they're resettled in the land, the gatekeepers take on this greater prominence. It fits the Genesis 1 setting because these gatekeepers are new Adams set at the gates of the new Eden that is the temple. They are new Adams who are set up to serve and to guard as Adam was. Now this chapter is also a new Exodus story. It's not only a new creation, but it's also telling the story of a second Exodus. That's implicit in the opening couple of verses. Judah goes into exile, but then he talks about possession and settling in the land. They've gone out of the land, and then he describes how they come back into the land. But all through the chapter, and particularly in the, in the portion that we read, when he's describing the gatekeepers, there are these references, references and allusions to Israel's time in the wilderness. He enumerates different groups. He enumerates four different groups. He tells us how many there were from the tribe of Benjamin, how many there were from the tribe of Judah, and how many priests came back, and how many gatekeepers there were. He gives us a mini book of numbers. And he describes the temple, the rebuilt temple, the rebuilt sanctuary of the restoration, as a tent. He describes it as a camp, the camp of the sons of Levi, the camp of Yahweh, using a term that usually means a military camp and refers to the camp of Israel in the wilderness. He described the priests, in fact, as mighty men of valor. He described them as if they were military personnel. 
He describes the temple as a tent or as the house of a tent. He describes how the priests are set or the gatekeepers are set at the four points, the four corners of the temple. They're at the east, they're at the south, they're at the north, and they're at the west, just as Israel was in the wilderness. This is a story of new creation, of a reorganization and a rebirth of Israel after exile. It's also the story of a new exodus. Israel coming out of another sojourn out of the land, returning to the land, and they're set up as if they were in the wilderness at Sinai, surrounding the tent of meeting that is the tabernacle. New exodus and new creation go together here as they often do in Scripture. The gatekeepers are important. In fact, the gatekeepers are essential to maintaining this, this restoration community. They're essential to maintaining the new world that God has set up after the exile. They're essential to ensuring that Israel doesn't end up just the way they had ended up, that is, being driven out of the land because of their sins. The Chronicler tells the story of Israel in the opening chapters of Chronicles as a story that's punctuated by acts of unfaithfulness, acts of sacrilege, acts in which Israel took hold of God's things and used God's things for their own purposes. That's what sacrilege is. It means using God's stuff for yourself, using God's land for yourself, using God's plunder for yourself. Earlier in First Chronicles, uh, he, uh, the chronicler refers to Achan. Achan was the uh, soldier in the, in the army of Joshua who took the, uh, the plunder from Jericho, buried it in his tent. The plunder belonged to the Lord. It was the Lord's plunder, but Achan took it for his own treasure. And because of that, he was he and his family were stoned. Sacrilege leads to disaster. The tribes that remained on the east side of the river, according to First Chronicles 5, also committed the same sin. They committed the same act of sacrilege. And because of that, they were driven into exile. At the beginning of chapter 10, we're told that Saul also committed sacrilege. You might remember the story. Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. He's supposed to wipe out everything that breathes. It's all supposed to be devoted to the Lord. He's supposed to carry out holy war against the Amalekites. But he didn't. He preserved the king of the Amalekites. He preserved some of the best of the plunder. That wasn't his to preserve. It was supposed to go to the Lord. It was supposed to be all offered as a uh, conflagration, as an ascension offering to God. But Saul kept some of it for himself. And because of his unfaithfulness, he died in the battle of Mount Gilboa. At the beginning of chapter 9, we're told that Judah went into exile because of her unfaithfulness, because of her sacrilege. She had been planted in the Holy Land, the land that belonged to the Lord, and she abused that land. She had been given the house, the house that God claimed as His holy house. And she had abused that house. Various kings had set up false gods in the temple. They hadn't preserved the temple. And because of that act of sacrilege, Judah is driven out of the land. Those are the reasons. That's, that's the history that's behind this emphasis in chapter 9 on the gatekeepers. Why are gatekeepers so important? Gatekeepers are important because they ensure that if they're doing their job rightly, they ensure that Israel doesn't again commit sacrilege, that they don't take any of God's stuff and use it for themselves, ensure that they, nobody intrudes on God's holy space. The gatekeepers are there at the door to make sure that nobody steps onto God's holy space who's not supposed to be there. 
Those are the kinds of acts of sacrilege that drove Israel out of the land in the first place. And the gatekeepers are set up after the exile in order to ensure that it doesn't happen again. The future of Israel in their restoration to the land depends on having faithful gatekeepers. And we're even told in this passage what a faithful gatekeeper looks like. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and the Lord was with him. Phineas, a priest, was a gatekeeper of the house of God. And we're, uh, what this is referring, I think, back to, first, uh, back to Numbers 25, the famous story of Phineas, when Israel was uh, committing idolatry, when they had been seduced by the daughters of Moab, and they were committing idolatry and holding a pagan festival. <clears throat> and Phineas intervened. He stopped the plague that had broken out against Israel by intervening and impaling with his spear, impaling a couple that was fornicating in their tent. That's what it means to be a gatekeeper. That's the zeal that it takes to prevent God's house from being defiled, to prevent God's stuff from being misused. And the gatekeepers of the restoration are being exhorted, implicitly exhorted to show the zeal of Phineas in guarding God's holy space and God's holy things. If they act with that same zeal, if they imitate the zeal of Phineas, then they will preserve this new exodus and this new creation. And Israel will settle in the land and be there permanently and be under God's blessing. Now, all that may or may not be of interest to you. Perhaps not. Uh, it may or may not be uh, of interest as a matter of historical, uh, of a historical record and ancient, the ancient history of Israel and some of the ways that Israel's sanctuaries worked. It may or may not be of interest, but it may not seem relevant to you. What does that have to do with us now in a new covenant era where we don't have temples or priests? What is this passage doing in the Bible other than as a record of what God has done in the past for Israel? Gatekeeping, I think, is just as relevant and just as essential to the preservation and health of a church as it was to the preservation and health of the Restoration people in ancient times after the Babylonian exile. Of course, we have to do some translation because things don't work the same as they used to. When Jesus came as the incarnate Son of God, He Himself was the temple, the living temple. He was the place where God dwelt. If you wanted to know where to find God, you'd go find Jesus. But then Jesus ascended, and He sent His Spirit, and now... The temple of God is the church. It's a temple for the same reason that Israel's temples were temples. Israel's temples were consecrated as houses of God by the presence of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and inhabits the house and consecrates the house so that the house and everything in it belongs to God. And that's exactly what is true of the church. The church is a temple in exactly the same sense. It's no longer made of stones and metals. No longer made of stuff like that. It's made of people. But the logic is exactly the same. We are together the temple of the Holy Spirit. We constitute a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and consecrates us together as God's house. In the New Covenant, that means the temple and the priesthood 
are virtually identical. In the Old Testament, that distinction was obvious. You could tell the difference between a priest and a temple. A priest was a person who ministered in the temple. The temple was a building. It was a holy building. And the priests went in and out and did their business in the temple and in the courtyards and so on. But now Jesus has come, and with the reorganization of things that Jesus brings, the temple and the priesthood are identified with each other. We are a temple together. We constitute a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are also all called to be priests and to carry out the same function that priests carried out in the Old Covenant. We're to offer sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. We're supposed to keep the house clean. We're supposed to guard God's house. We're all called to be gatekeepers of this holy space. You're looking at a holy space as you look around you today. I'm looking at a holy space as I look at you today. And we are all called to be priests within this holy space. We have different forms of calling. That that priestly service takes different forms in the New Covenant. Some of us are ordained to specific tasks in this holy priesthood and in this holy house. But everyone has a priestly task in this holy house. And that means everyone has the task of gatekeeping. We are all gatekeepers of holy space. We are all supposed to be doing what the gatekeepers did in First Chronicles 9, showing the zeal of Phineas in protecting God's stuff from sacrilege and protecting God's house from defilement. Well, how does that work? What does that mean in practice? Well, each of you individually is the temple of the Spirit. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 in our epistle reading for this morning. Paul uses the logic of the temple to exhort the Corinthians to avoid sexual immorality. He tells them to avoid sexual immorality. There's a commandment that goes with that. He tells them not to join their bodies to a prostitute. There's a commandment in the Ten Commandments that he could have cited, but that's not the logic that he uses. He doesn't say, God commanded you not commit adultery, therefore don't commit adultery. Instead, he says, don't you know that you don't belong to yourselves? You were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. You belong to someone else now. Don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you yourself are holy ground? That your body is a holy temple in which the Spirit dwells and therefore honor God with your body. Therefore, don't take God's body, yours, the body that God gave you, the body that God inhabits, and join it to a prostitute. That's not just adultery, Paul says. That's an act of sacrilege. That's the same kind of sacrilege that led Israel to be driven from the land. When Christians, uh, when Christians uh, join themselves to prostitutes, when Christians commit sexual immorality, they are abusing God's holy land, which is their own body. They're abusing God's holy things. And that's the kind of sin that leads to exile. That's, we can apply that same logic in all kinds of other ways individually. Guard your hearts, for out of it are the issues of life, Solomon says. We might think that we can control our own hearts. We don't have to worry about what goes in. Things can go in and our hearts are impervious to the influences of what goes into our hearts. But Solomon knows better. Solomon tells us to, that we are each stationed as guardians of our hearts. We're stationed at the gates of our hearts. We're stationed at the gates of our eyes. What do you look at? We're stationed at the gates of our ears. What are you listening to? 
We're stationed at the gates of our mouths and our tongues. Who are you ta- What are you tasting? What are you speaking? Each one of us is called to guard our own bodies, our own hearts, from intrusion, from sacrilege, from impurities. Parents are gatekeepers of their homes. And parents are gatekeepers of their kids. Kids don't necessarily like being guarded by their parents. But this is one of the vocations of parenting. It has a kind of priestly quality to it. Parents are responsible to guard the gates of their homes to ensure that nothing impure or defiling comes into the house. They're supposed to be guarding their children so that their children do not commit sacrilege using God's holy things that is themselves for unholy purposes. And I don't have to tell you how challenging it is to stand guard over your children these days. When there are so many avenues of intrusion into your family and into your life, many of them entirely and completely private, parents have to be diligent and vigilant to guard their children. But this can lead to a kind of hovering parenting that I don't advocate, that, that's not a healthy kind of parenting. What you're mainly trying to do as parents, is you want to guard your kids, but what you're mainly trying to do is trying to teach them to guard themselves. Teach them that they, each one of them is a temple of the Spirit. And each one of them is to guard his heart and his eyes and his ears and his mouth and all the gateways to his heart. Each one of them is supposed to be guarding God's holy space. But someday, of course, your children are not going to have you around to guard them, to be their gatekeeper. Liberation for your kids, anxiety perhaps for you, but it's going to happen one way or the other. And at that point, you don't want your kids dependent on your gatekeeping. You want your kids to be able to keep their own gates and be faithful and zealous in doing it. You all are a holy house to God. God dwells among us. God dwells in us. And if that's true, and if we are all priests of this house, then we are all guardians of this house and guardians and gatekeepers for one another. That's what Jesus is talking about when He talks about church discipline. You notice in Matthew 18 that when Jesus begins to talk about church discipline, He doesn't begin by saying, you pastors, you elders, you leaders of the church, make sure that you're watching over everyone so that when someone sins, you go and correct That's not where it starts. Church discipline, according to Matthew 18, begins with individual members going to individual members because of sins by individual members of the church. If your brother sins against you, don't call the pastor. Don't gossip about it. Take it to your brother and seek to be reconciled to your brother. Seek to correct your brother. That's an act of gatekeeping. You're preserving the peace of God. You're preserving your brother from sin, guarding him from a sin he's committed, seeking to lead him to repentance. That's your job. Pastors, of course, have a particular calling to oversee the house of God, but it's everyone's job within the church. Jesus describes a situation where your brother has sinned against you. In Galatians 6, Paul says, if you, if you find as any man, he's talking about a brother, a member of the church, If any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, go to him and correct him. Do it gently. Do it humbly, acknowledging your own sin and your own failings. But you do it. Go to your brother. Seek to correct him. Seek to restore him. Guard guard this holy house by correcting 
and uh, being a gatekeeper for your brother. Encourage one another, the writer of Hebrews says, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. Not just the pastors encourage you. Not just the pastors uh, ensure that you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. This means that we have to interfere in one another's lives. We're called to interfere and intervene in one another's lives, and we don't like that. We don't like doing it. It's not easy to confront somebody who sinned against you or that you know is in sin. We don't like to be done to us. We don't want that correction. Don't tread on me. We're Americans. Leave me alone. I can live my life as I want. No, you can't. <laughs> not if you're in God's holy house because you are, your life is not your own. It doesn't belong to you to do whatever you want. It belongs to God. And you're called to not only to preserve it and use it as he, for his pleasure, but also to preserve one another. The health of a church depends on a on the members being faithful in this regard. If you don't keep up your gatekeeping function, if you aren't gatekeepers and guardians of God's holy house, then a root of bitterness might grow up within the church. Then sin might fester without being corrected. Then you might have uh, sacrilege and impurities within the church that cause disaster and uh, desolation. But First Chronicles 9 also points to a positive reason for this gatekeeping. The reason why the gatekeepers are so important is because they're guarding the perimeter of God's house. But what's important is what's going on inside God's house. They guard the perimeter to ensure that what goes on inside continues uninhibited. And what goes on inside, according to 1 Chronicles 9, at least by allusion and reference, 1 Chronicles 9 refers to the utensils of the sanctuary. It refers to the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the frankincense and the spices. It refers, in Michael's reading, to somebody fixing flat cakes. And I've got things baked in pans in my translation. I like flat cakes a lot better. But inside that temple, there's somebody fixing flat cakes. And you want those flat cakes to be preserved. And you want the festivity of the house to be preserved. And that's why you need gatekeepers. You don't have gatekeepers because... Christianity is a joyless religion. You have gatekeepers to preserve the joy that takes place within so that that joy isn't corrupted by sin, by sacrilege, and by impurity. You maintain the gates of your own heart so that you can maintain the joy that is your strength. You maintain the gates of your kids. You're a guardian for your kids so they can grow up and be joyful, full of the fruits of the Spirit. Regard one another with the zeal of Phineas so that we can preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so that this holy house can become a garden flourishing with all the fruits of the Spirit. First Chronicles 9 and the rest of Scripture teaches us that we are indeed our brother's keepers. We are indeed our brother's guardians. Each of you is a gatekeeper of this holy house. May God grant us grace to do that faithfully. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you have consecrated us as your holy temple. We thank you that we are all uh, living stones of that temple and all priests, Levites, guardians of this house. 
We pray that You would fill us with the Spirit of God, the Spirit that gives us the zeal of Phineas to preserve the holiness of this house, to preserve our unity and peace. Give us grace to guard the gates of our own hearts so that we might guard one another and this house might be filled with the joy of Your Spirit. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.